Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. You know that when you were Gentiles, you were often misled by false gods that can't even speak. So I want to make it clear to you that no one says Jesus is cursed when speaking by God's Spirit. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are different spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are different ministries and the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God who produces all of them in everyone. A demonstration of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. A word of wisdom is given by the Spirit to one person. A word of knowledge to another, according to the same Spirit. Faith to still another by the same Spirit. Gifts of healing to another in the one Spirit. Performance of miracles to another. Prophecy to another. The ability to tell spirits apart to another. Different kinds of tongues to another. And the interpretation of the tongues to another. All these things are produced by the one and same Spirit who gives what he wants to each person. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Author of life, we thank you for your word, and we ask that your spirit would be with us this morning as we reflect upon your teachings so that we might be transformed in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. As we continue our series on spiritual gifts, we return once again to the first letter to the Corinthians. And Paul manages to name a whole slew of gifts in just six verses. But most of the gifts that he names we can place into two broad categories. Gifts that relate to a person's head or gifts that relate to a person's heart. So we'll begin today by looking at some of the gifts that allow us to be transformed in our mind. And as I looked at the list of gifts, it struck me that each of these gifts comes in complementary pairs. Knowledge pairs with teaching, which is something that Paul mentioned last week. Wisdom pairs with discernment and tongues pairs with interpretation. I would imagine that when we hear about the gift of knowledge, we probably have a particular image of what that looks like. At least I know when I have heard or read about these gifts in the past, it's usually connected with what can be described as being book smart. In fact, if you look up spiritual gifts on the United Methodist Church's website, this is the definition that you'll find. The gift of knowledge allows people to automatically convert facts, data, and information into useful and important knowledge. People possessing this gift can learn in a variety of ways, return, retain what they learn, and understand how learning can be applied in meaningful and productive ways. But I would like to propose another understanding of what it means to have the gift of knowledge. Knowledge is the ability to perceive that which is beautiful in the world, because that which is beautiful is a reflection of God's nature. 
The reason I offer this definition is because we know, based on Paul's pronouncements from this very letter, that knowledge cannot simply be about how well a person can learn. The message about the cross is foolishness, writes Paul. So knowledge has to mean something different from our usual assumption. Knowledge must have something to do with our ability to see God revealed in the world around us. And this type of knowledge can take many different forms. For philosophers and scientists, God's beauty is revealed in a very different way than it is for poets and painters. But they all have the capacity to see beauty nonetheless. And if we shift our definition of knowledge, that means we have to shift our definition of what it means to be a good teacher as well. If knowledge is more than receiving data, then teaching has to be more than imparting data. Teaching must have something to do with the ability to inspire others to see beauty in what they do. Having spent a lot of my life in classrooms, I can attest to the difference that it makes to have a teacher who's passionate about what they're doing and why it matters. In the study of history, for example, it's compelling to learn about the stories of other human beings in order to build empathy with our fellow human beings. It's not compelling to sit in a room and memorize dates and names without any sense of the bigger picture. But this could apply to any field. Think about food preparation, for example. It often seems that fast food workers or cafeteria workers are seen as bringing something less to their craft than a chef in a Michelin-rated restaurant, as if it takes more knowledge and skill to do one than the other, rather than taking a different kind of knowledge and skill. But what if we see the beauty that exists in the same kind of skill that it took for Jesus to feed a crowd of thousands? In the knowledge that it takes to create an environment where people not only receive physical nourishment, but spiritual nourishment as they share a communal meal with one another. Good teachers help us to see the value of our craft. Good teachers help us to elevate ourselves through recognizing the dignity of our work. Jean Vanier was one of the founders of L'Arche, an intentional community for those with mental or physical disabilities. In a book that he wrote about communities, he writes, a community is like an orchestra. Each instrument is beautiful when it plays alone. But when they all play together, each given its own weight and turn, the result is even more beautiful. A community is like a garden full of flowers, shrubs, and trees. Each helps to give life to the other. Together, they bear witness to the beauty of God, creator and gardener extraordinary. In other words, we benefit from all the types of knowledge that we possess. We enrich one another with our different skills and viewpoints. And good teachers help us grow into beauty together. The next complimentary set of gifts we'll consider are wisdom and discernment. Wisdom is often contrasted with knowledge by saying something like, knowledge is understanding information and wisdom is knowing how to put information to use. Or knowledge is like book smarts, but wisdom is like street smarts. And again, I'm going to offer us a different way of thinking about this gift. 
Wisdom is a deep rootedness in the divine presence. So if knowledge is the perception of God's beauty, then wisdom is the ability to remain grounded in the reality of God. Because if we look to scripture, there's a whole category of texts called wisdom literature that notably contains Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. Each of these books is written to help the reader understand the reality of nature, particularly the reality of God. Now each of these texts comes to a different conclusion about the fairness of creation, but the underlying element to them is that they make sense of creation through their understanding of God. Wisdom, therefore, has less to do with knowing how the world works in a conventional sense and more to do with knowing the deep realities underlying our existence. Or one could say it's less about street smarts and more about cosmic smarts. People with wisdom are those who are able to remain rooted in the truth of God at all times. These are also the kinds of people that we often classify as mystics because they're so deeply enmeshed with God's reality. So how does discernment pair with this deeply rooted understanding of reality? Discernment is essentially the ability to be decisive. It's an ability to encounter a situation and form a judgment about how to proceed. Discernment, in its most perfect form, is an ability to make a decision that stems from the knowledge of the Spirit about what is good and beautiful. In other words, the more deeply one experiences wisdom, the more authentically that one can exercise the gift of discernment. I imagine that many of us know some people who are really excellent at encountering a situation and making a decision right away. But we're also probably aware that just because someone has a history of making snap judgments doesn't necessarily mean that they have a history of making good judgments. Because there's a difference between impulsiveness and discernment. Where impulsiveness is unpredictable and chaotic, discernment is reliable and trustworthy. Those with the gift of discernment are those who have the ability to make decisions that turn out to reflect God time and time again. This brings us to our third pair of gifts of the mind, tongues and interpretation. Now, when you hear about the gift of tongues, you may picture folks rolling around on the ground or throwing their hands in the air while a stream of gibberish pours out of their mouth. But this isn't the image that scripture actually gives us of this gift. If, for example, we look at the story of Pentecost from Acts 2, what we see about the gift of tongues is that the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples gathered in Jerusalem and causes them to speak so that all the people of the world who are gathered around them can understand what is being said in their own native languages. The gift of tongues, rightly understood, is the ability to speak in languages beyond our native language. It, of course, then makes sense that this gift of tongues is complemented by a gift of interpretation. While it may be possible for the Spirit to gift someone with the ability to speak in a tongue they do not understand, like at Pentecost, 
It's much more common that those who speak in tongues also have an ability to understand what they are communicating. For example, I have a friend who's studying to teach English as a second language in Korea. And while we were in Korea, he had a natural ability to pick up on some of the patterns that he was seeing in the language. So by the end of our trip, he could better communicate with others, even if it was something as simple as being able to ask for milk while we were doing a home stay with a family who didn't speak English. But these gifts of tongues and interpretation extend beyond picking up foreign languages. They include the ability to speak beyond generational or cultural divides. Interpretation is the ability to engage in code switching in order to bridge the gaps between groups of people who would otherwise be speaking past each other. Again, we see that tongues and interpretation is not simply about the ability to process a certain type of data. It's a reflection of God's nature. Those who speak in tongues and can interpret are directly engaged in God's work of reconciling the world. Their gifts are gifts of diplomacy that tear down barriers and build up understanding and love. So as we move to the gifts of the heart, I hope that you're picking up on the fact that the gifts of the head are connected to the matters of the heart. The intellect is only really serving as a gift from God when it unites our being with God's reality. The first of the heart gifts that we'll look at this morning is faith. And for many people, if you ask what faith means, they'll likely turn to the definition offered by the author of Hebrews. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And I think this is a fine starting place to think about faith. The assurance of things hoped for, in other words, confidence in the promises of God. Paul also often pairs faith with hope, which work together toward love. The conviction of things not seen is a bit more ambiguous. In the way that Christianity often gets distilled, this conviction seems to boil down to nothing more than a belief that heaven awaits us once we're done in this life. But I think the author of Hebrews has something more in mind. They write, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. And this sounds an awful lot like our baptismal language around spiritual forces, a recognition that a materialist worldview is not a complete reflection of reality. And this seems to be steering us back toward that head gift of wisdom. Faith, we could say, is a trust in God rooted in the reality of God's power. This sort of definition helps us to understand how the word that we translate as faith can also be translated as loyalty. Faith is trust in the things hoped for, but it's also loyalty to the things that God has already worked in the world. We know that what God has promised God will accomplish, but we also celebrate that God is and has been accomplishing the establishment of the kingdom already. 
If we return once again to the UMC website, we see faith described as the foundation or the bedrock for our lives. Faith is the solid ground on which we stand. It is the unwavering devotion to the one who is Lord over all, even in times of crisis. One of those moments of crisis in which we find our faith put to the test is when we, or the ones we love, are in need of healing. Now, full disclosure, this is a gift that I approach with a certain level of caution. For as many examples as we have of someone receiving healing, we could name just as many cases where healing does not come. What I don't want us to hear or to believe is that if someone does or doesn't receive healing, that that reflects on their own faith or moral character. This is an easy path to go down, but one that I don't believe reflects the reality of God's love. Nonetheless, healing is a spiritual gift and it is worth celebrating. Those with the gifts of healing are not just those who heal our physical bodies, they're also those who bring wholeness to our mental and spiritual well-being. Healers are those who see suffering and are compelled to do what they can to reduce the pain being experienced by another. While some with the gift of healing may work by spiritual charisma, we should also recognize that this gift is possessed by those who are doctors, nurses, therapists, counselors, or any other number of medical professionals. God's gifts can work amazing things through rather ordinary means. And so we come to our final gift this morning, miracles. Some would argue that this is a gift of a bygone era in the church. Others will go on television at two in the morning to sell miracle water to cure, cure whatever ails you. Where the truth lies in God's desire to perform miracles through extraordinary means, I cannot say with any confidence. But I can say this, the gift of miracles is ever present in our lives. When we had so many people in this building the other night that we had to pull out extra tables, that was a miraculous sight to behold. When I sit with the kids on Sunday morning and they say something so profound about God's love that I find myself at a loss for words, that is miraculous. When we sit with one another in our moments of sadness and are able to find something that we can laugh about together, that is miraculous. In every moment that we reveal God's beauty and love to each other, we experience a miracle from heaven. So those who most strongly possess this gift are those who are able to see the miracle in every moment of creation. As I draw to a close, I invite you to reflect on how our head and our heart are linked to one another in service of God. We'll never be able to argue someone into faith without also moving their heart. We'll never sustain someone's emotional response to grace 
without nurturing a knowledge of God's revealed beauty. But when we're able to wed the gifts of our heart with the gifts of our minds, we will find the two drawing each other ever deeper into the mysteries of faith. And we will discover that the world will want to know and experience the joy and the wholeness that we have in Christ. Amen. Please pray with me. God of gifts and graces, open our minds so that we may see the beauty of who you are. Open our hearts so that we might be vessels of your love. Open our eyes to the extraordinary things that are happening all around us in ordinary ways. Unite our intellect with our emotions so that we might experience your oneness in our soul. Amen.